difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Genevieve Kosky, Tasha Robinson, Keith Epps. On the first half of this episode, we discussed Joe Dante's Gremlins 2, The New Batch, an anarchic and idiosyncratic sequel to his hit comedy. In this episode, we're looking at Deadpool 2, which doesn't reinvent the original Deadpool so much as amplify its violence and vulgar self-awareness. Deadpool 2 was directed by David Leitch, one of the stuntmen turned directors behind the John Wick movies, and so perhaps it's fitting that it kicks off with a home invasion and a death for which the hero feels responsible. Early in the film, Wade Wilson, a.k.a. Deadpool, played by Ryan Reynolds, and his girlfriend Vanessa, played by Morena Baccarin, are shown committing themselves to each other and discussing baby names for their first kid, so of course Vanessa gets immediately killed. Deadpool tries to commit suicide, but alas, his indestructibility is a curse he has to live with. In the absence of the family he intended to create with Vanessa, Deadpool strikes out and acquires a mutant outcast surrogate family of his own, starting with a boy named Russell, a.k.a. Firefist, played by Julian Dennison, who you'll remember as the kid from Hunt for the Wilder People. Russell has pyrotechnic powers, but he's been living in a kind of miserable orphanage for young mutants. Other Deadpool friends include Colossus, a Russian with titanium skin, and Domino, played by Zazie Beetz, whose helpful superpower is luck. Their nemesis is Cable, played by Josh Brolin, a cybernetic soldier from the future who comes back to kill Russell before the boy grows up to kill his family. That's a lot of plot for a movie that's mostly about doodling in the margins and exploding the cliches we've come to expect from the superhero genre. We'll talk about where Deadpool 2 functions as a sequel and fits into the superhero realm after this. Sorry I'm late. I was rounding up all the gluten in the world and launching into space where it can't not hurt us ever again. Kiss me like you miss me, Red. My name's Cable. I'm here for the kid. What? The kid? Move or die. Kids give us a chance to be better than we used to be. He needs you. You're a lot smarter than I look. I ain't letting Cable kill this kid. But I can't do this alone. Can you speak up? It's hard to hear you with that pity dick in your mouth. We're gonna form a super duper group. Meet them tough, morally flexible, and young enough to carry their own franchise for 10 to 12 years. We'll be known as X-Force. Isn't that a little derivative? You're absolutely right. Uh, Deadpool 2. What did everyone think? I think I told you after we saw it, like I realized how easily I'm entertained sometimes. <laughs> uh, because there's a lot that bugged me about the movie, but I thought that when it was funny, it was really funny. And, and uh, that goes a long way. Yeah, this is like just the quintessential candy movie, I think, mm-hmm. where like you enjoy it in the moment of watching it, but you feel kind of gross about it afterwards, <laughs> you know, and like it, it definitely starts to make you feel a little bloated by the end. But, you know, I laughed a lot at Deadpool 2. I saw it a second time with my boyfriend and it 
definitely had lost a little of the magic it had the first time. I don't know how, and that that may have just been like my headspace at the time, but I also suspect this may not be a film that holds up to repeat viewings where some of the, the surprise of certain elements mm-hmm. of it are, are no longer there. Yeah, I can certainly see that. I, I have a uh, like a handful of problems with it in various places. It does some things I don't like. It doesn't do some things I would have liked it to do. But Genevieve was sitting next to me the first time I watched it. And uh, like anything I say, she's going to temper with the fact that I laughed my ass off throughout yeah. this movie. <laughs> this is also a throw a whole bunch of stuff at the wall and see what sticks kind of movie. But I think more so than Gremlins 2 for me, the stuff that's being thrown at the wall is thematically focused on something that is like very specific to my interests and tastes. In this case, uh, a lot of the the worst aspects of comics. Like this movie is merciless in the way it, it lampoons a specific era of comics and a specific kind of action movie and a specific kind of comics movie. Uh, and it's it's just it's my jam. It got a lot better for me as it went along because I really do not like the beginning of this. I I thought the first movie did a pretty good job of balancing the jokes with actually making us care about Deadpool as a character and just killing off the girlfriend like that is just such a cliche, you know. It's it's been very contentious, the idea of whether or not Vanessa was fridged in this movie. Yeah, I read about fridging on a <laughs> site called Vox. Yeah, yeah, she was totally fridged in this movie. I mean, uh, you know. not, not according to Gail Simone, a creator of the women in refrigerators uh, trope, who, oh, yeah, who, she... was, who was tweeting today that she sees it as a subversion of the women in refrigerators trope, which for those of you unfamiliar with the term of fridging or women in refrigerators is a term for a a particularly noxious trope in comics where uh, female characters, often girlfriends of the protagonist, are killed off or otherwise tortured or harmed purely for the sake of engendering angst in the male protagonist. I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, I'm not, who am I to argue with Gail Simone who wrote wrote a lot of Deadpool comics that people really like, but, but I, didn't see, I don't see how it's a... It's a version of that in any way, because basically she's killed off to motivate him to do the rest of the things he does in the movie. Yes, but I I mean, I I came out of the movie, and Tasha, we briefly talked about this too, so I want to hear your thoughts on it. But I definitely came away disappointed that Vanessa was not a bigger part of the movie, but thinking that it did ultimately come down on the side of subverting the trope, even though, as it turns out, the writers of the film were not even familiar with women in refrigerators, Mm -hmm. so they were not intentionally subverting it. But the fact that... Vanessa continues to reappear throughout the film and push Wade through this storyline in a way that subverts the revenge narrative in a way that I really responded to because as I've established on this podcast I have a lot of issues with the traditional revenge narrative and I think the way that Vanessa enables the story to push back against that and turn it into something more interesting and how it works in tandem with the death of Cable's family and then ultimately the way it is undone, gleefully so, in the mid credit sequence. Because another element of fridging is that the female character like rarely comes back in a way that male characters are often reborn in comics over and over again. So the mid credit sequence kind of like undercuts the finality of the fridging, which I, I, a lot of people see as cheap and glib, and I, I understand that. But ultimately, I came away from it feeling like the way Vanessa used in this movie wasn't great, but I didn't find it offensive. Well, whether it subverts the trope or not, I just found it's a really sloppy way to start that movie. And, and totally... You didn't even like the nine to five well, montage? No. I mean, that up. But, yeah, but, but, uh, but like, it was just tonally, it's kind of all over the place mm. when, in, in the beginning of that movie. But the, but the, mid, the middle section, especially of this movie, the whole gathering of the X-Force. X-Force. <laughs> 
But Scott, we haven't heard from from you, who has definitely <laughs> the least connection to this character in this genre, and probably I'm guessing has no real thoughts yeah. about X Force. So mm, well, I, I did. I did. That was my favorite bit in the movie mm. for sure. And uh, what about and the wind? And you're right. I, I was I was telling I was telling one before the segment that I'm I'm going to have as little to say about Deadpool two as I had a lot to say about Gremlins two because again, um, much like last week's pairing, it's just not an area of great expertise for me. But I will say my experiences with both Deadpool movies, I'm fearing actually seeing this one a second time because I had that experience with the first film of enjoying it more the first time than the second time. It's sort of worn off its charm. But it's nice to have these movies out there as almost like a palate cleanser because we get a certain a lot of a certain type of movie particularly the MCU which is so disciplined mm-hmm. in the way these films are made and how they're targeted and how much language and violence you know how that is all very carefully managed I mean to just to have these Deadpool movies strike a different tone to be a little vulgar and violent and hyper stylized and quote unquote edgy I mean there's something it's just a different feel to to see these these movies, and it's kind of a relief. I mean, it's it, it, I don't feel like these are like great films, but they're necessary counterpoints, or they they kind of zag where the other films zig or something. I just I, I I like them as a contrast to what we usually see. Again, to get a little meta, like I did feel a little like twinge of regret that we were doing like two major superhero movies in a, in a row as our mm-hmm. modern film, but like. Deadpool 2 just feels like such an inversion and explicitly in in some parts uh, I mean obviously we have Josh Brolin uh, playing Cable here uh, right after he played Thanos in Infinity War mm-hmm. uh, so even though Deadpool even calls him Thanos yeah, at one point exactly so like even though like I I am looking forward to getting beyond uh, superhero movies on this podcast I do like talking about Deadpool right on the heels of the epitome of the type of movie it is satirizing. There's also just, I mean, Infinity War, the ending of Infinity War has been so discussed and debated. I mean, it feels like it's left a cultural scar on (laughs) all of these people who grew up with the MCU movies uh, and yet didn't necessarily read comics. So aren't necessarily used to the disposability of comic book characters Mm. and the ever-flowing cycle of the return of comic book characters (laughs) after the, you know, the big commercial die-offs that inevitably happen. And then here with Deadpool, it just, it feels like the movie makes fun of that kind of tone, that kind of trope in so many different ways. The whole sequence with Mm -hmm. X-Force. I mean, I was, I was howling at that because... (laughs) You love Shatterstar so much. Oh my God. The, the, (laughs) introduction of Shatterstar, who, you know, is just a ridiculous Liefeldian monstrosity. uh, By a guy who can't draw feet. (laughs) By a guy who can't draw feet. Of course, we're going to make fun of Liefeld directly in this movie. When I I say making fun of an entire era of comics, I'm thinking of Shatterstar and like what a terrible, pointless character that was and what the film does with him here. But the whole subversion of the getting the team together for the heist thing that goes on here, like it once again is just kind of my jam. The things that I have problems with in the movie are the fridging, mostly because of that sense that the screenwriters, as they say, had absolutely no idea that that was a trope. It's like, how can you do a movie that is expressly about making fun of comic book tropes and that expressly has your main character repeatedly turning to the camera to say, this is lazy writing yeah. or that's an overused trope 
and have it centered directly on one of the biggest and most annoying tropes of all time, not just done once, but done twice in, in two different characters. Yeah, as someone who was feeling the subversion of that trope from the outset, like when that interview came out this weekend with the screenwriters, I just kind of had a head desk moment of, oh, you let me down. <laughs> like, Boy. You've made this so much harder to justify. And that, and that interview is disappointing in so many ways because it's they don't just say we weren't familiar with the trope. They say maybe some women will object to it, mm-hmm. but not many people will. And then they justify. <laughs> oh, and then, really? that's seriously, the seriously, <laughs> that's, that's not a precise quote, but that is very much okay. the tone. And then they go on to say, we wanted to take something away from mm-hmm. Deadpool and the Marina Baccarin character was the best thing to take away from him. It's just so clear where they're coming from. Mm. Yeah, their justification for their treatment of Vanessa was more or less the textbook definition of <laughs> fringing. So... Yeah. Yeah. But authorial intent. It doesn't matter, guys. So what? And, and, well, and and the ending of the movie that's like it literally doesn't matter. And that <laughs> I don't know. I keep coming back to that moment and it really complicates how I feel about it because there are so many beats that the movie hits that are meant to be as I was saying about gremlins that are meant to be sincere, that are meant to be emotional and that feel a little cheap and manipulative and even more so when they kind of shrug it all off at the end and say, "Eh, it doesn't matter." That's a question that I have for you all, too, about Deadpool 2. I mean, we'll get into it a little bit with Gremlins 2 as well, but it's, it's more pertinent here, which is that can we, you know, the, the, this film has kind of a family theme going for it. I mean, it has it has a certain sentimental side. I mean, can we care about characters in a film that's so aggressive about deconstructing itself as this one that, that is going to get to a point where it kind of declares itself to be kind of BS? I think when one of those characters is played by Julian Dennison, you can... Because, yep. man, that kid is great. Yeah. <laughs> also, God, he, I mean, I love Hunt for the Wilder People so much. And I love him in it so much. And seeing him here as, like, this feels like where that character was headed if the events of Hunt for the Wilder People didn't happen. Like, it's a, <laughs> it's a different character, but you can feel that DNA in it. And I have both an affection for him and an affection for just the sheer unrelentingness of like his teen anger. It's kind of, it's not that different. It's a much bigger, brighter and obviously hotter version of what they did in the first movie with teenage Negasonic warheads, unrelenting anger and contempt for everything in the movie. There's just this idea in these films that, you know, teenagers are angry and you're, not going to change that you can make them laugh you can make them happy you can make them feel something but in the end they're going to default back to that because that is the state of being a teenager and i i kind of one of the things i respect most about deadpool is its unrelentingness mm-hmm. it's unre- the unrelentingness of its its humor of its themes and of like hitting the same note over and over again until it comes back around to funny even if it hits a point of not funny in the middle somewhere is it good to have somebody like that to counteract what Ryan Reynolds is doing. Uh, I mean, what is your general Ryan Reynolds tolerance level? Because mine is mine is it's it, I've softened a little bit on him since the Van Wilder days, but he's not that far from Van Wilder at any point ever, right? I mean, The Nines is one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, that's right. He is so good in it. He does so many different things in it. Like that movie. First of all. Everybody should see it. Second of all, everybody should not read anything about it before they see it. And third of all, him and Melissa McCarthy both in that film and Octavia Spencer's in it too. And she's terrific. But most specifically him and Melissa McCarthy, like 
if they set a giant heap of babies on fire together tomorrow, I'd be like, oh, I really loved those two. I still kind of love them because of this movie. <laughs> I, uh, wow. Yeah, I think uh, I, I'm with you on the nines. It's a really terrific movie. And, and I feel like people have found the best way to use him or he's found, found the best mm-hmm. use for his skills. Like the, the kind of just find a way to either subvert or just lean into the, the smarminess and wise uh, assness of his persona. Like I thought he was really good in Mississippi grind, which is a movie piece really worth checking out. Yeah. And, and uh, um, Mendelssohn. I know. Is the, uh, yeah. Yeah. He's but, the guy. Yeah, we can't have one without the other. Well, I guess you could, but but yeah. they're they're good together. Though. They are, and I think I think these these movies make good use of what he does well. Yeah, I have, I have no objections to Ryan Reynolds. I, I think he, I think he's the best, Scott. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I think it's really important that the Deadpool movies work, even if you kind of loathe him. Like even if you think he's obnoxious and juvenile, that his shtick is dumb. Like the movie wants you to be on the movie's side. It doesn't necessarily have to have you on his side because you can see that everybody in the film who is more reasonable or more nuanced or more intelligent, like finds him kind of tiresome. Mm. And like, that's, that provides so much interesting tension. Like you can put yourself in different places in this movie and still enjoy it without necessarily wanting to be him. But but he's still your buddy. He's still the guy. He's still the narrator. He's still the one leading you through the movie. He's your bro. He's not my bro. He's your bro in this He's movie. not my bro, pal. That's, that's the, <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that his narrator role is, is being, hey, come with me. I'm going to show you how this whole thing works. I mean, I, I just think you have to have a certain amount of affection for him in order for these films to work. You have to find him somewhat charming. You okay. don't have to find him 100% charming. I think these films will still work if you only find him 20% charming. Mm-hmm. I think they'll work if you find him 100% charming. Like, I think you're supposed to find him at least as repellent as he is, like, appealing. And that's just part of the fun of it. It's also kind of part of the Deadpool character, you know? Oh, like, yeah. like, Reynolds is a good fit for Deadpool. Like, there's a reason that he agitated to get these movies made to have another shot at the character after uh, Wolverine Origins, which the credit scene also lampoons. Like, Deadpool is a good fit for Ryan Reynolds for the both the good and the bad about his personality. And well, how I th- about Green Lantern? Do you say do you, <laughs> that, was that a good fit? That's, that's my favorite joke in the whole movie. It's the very end. Yeah. Welcome to the big time kid. <laughs> I, I think it's funny that he's openly embraced mocking how bad that movie is. I mean, mm-hmm. it is so not done in Hollywood to bite the hand that feeds you. If you can prevent biting the hand that feeds you at all. And so people are forced to walk around pretending that stinkers that they were in that were not what they signed up for or not what they wanted to be uh, still have some kind of merit. And the fact that he's been able to just say, like, this was a terrible movie and I'm embarrassed <laughs> by it. Like, it is really rare. That's why that's why we always like to interview people uh, at the end of their careers. <laughs> <laughs> so you can say, oh, wait, I don't have to. I don't have to pretend that this movie was bad. You know, R.I.P. Margot Kidder. That interview with her was all her slagging all of her bad movies. I think that in superhero movies, there is often a tension between how much we like the character and how much we find the character, the, the protagonist, annoying because they're so goody-goody or because they're so obsessive. Mm-hmm. You know, with Batman, there's always that kind of, like, he's exciting and thrilling and we want to be him. But 
he's also a nutcase who dresses up like a rodent <laughs> in order to beat people up because his mommy and daddy died. Like there's always that tension of how much can we believe this character? How much can we buy into these, this character's psyche? How much can we get a little tired of like the relentless do-goodery? I think that's one of the reasons we embrace villains so much because they're often more fun than heroes. Deadpool gets to be a hero and a villain and he kind of epitomizes that tension like he's not a good guy and we don't have to like feel uplifted by him we can just watch him behave badly and always enjoy it i think it's interesting this may be a little outside the the scope of the discussion but but there haven't been that many comic book characters to break through to the mainstream that weren't created you know back in, in the 60s and 70s at the latest like wolverine was kind of the last one for a while hellboy sort of uh but also the more recent ones have been deadpool and harley quinn both who have like sort of this this special well harley more in the comics than any uh, live action versions but kind of breaking the fourth wall self-aware making fun of comics tropes kind of thing i wonder i don't have a theory as to why that is but i think it's i think it's kind of a curious thing to pay attention to i, I mean you could probably guess why that is I, mean, I think the way people uh receive culture is i think much different now than, than it would have been you know 40 years ago there's also i think there's often a, a humorlessness about fandoms there's a feeling of if you don't like this thing that I love, there's something wrong with you. And some of that can come in the form of like, how dare you in any way critique this thing that I love? If you can have something that's so much within the fandom, if it's unquestionably a part of the fandom and it's making fun of the fandom, sometimes it can be sort of a way of like, we're laughing at this, but it's safe. Like mm. we're not saying that comics suck. We, we love comics, but Deadpool can say they suck and it's okay because he's part of the genre. He's part of the milieu. He's doing the hero things. He's just doing them while making fun of them in a way that doesn't kick fanboys out or look down on them. Well, we want to talk more about films that break themselves down, so we'll be right back after the break to talk about the connections between Gremlins 2 and Deadpool 2. This is the fifth incident. This kid needs to be in the icebox, not here. Russell belongs in our care, not in prison. I assure you, we have everything under control. Not getting a real under-control vibe here, Marty. It is Glenn, isn't it? Daniel. I'll ask the questions. Let me talk to the kid. You stay here with your weird secret sex lips. You want to die? This kid's adorable. I don't know why I packed the hollow points. I'll burn your balls off! Did you just say hollow points? Yeah. Probably should have brought a super soaker. (laughs) Hi there. Stay back or Justin Bieber dies. (laughs) Ha! Justin Bieber. He called you Justin Bieber. <laughs> oh, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, let's, let's not do whatever that is. Okay, let's just talk. I mean, it's, it's Russell, right? Fire fist. Fire fist. Ooh, that's a great name. Where does it burn? Just the fist or all the way up to the elbow? And now it's time for Connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Uh, and I think the first thing we should probably talk about is the references on display <laughs> because both of these films make a tremendous amount of reference, not just to themselves, but also to a range of other films and, and cultural 
items. Uh, how, how would you compare and contrast these movies? I think one of the reasons I like the referential structure in Deadpool 2 better than in Gremlins 2 is because in Deadpool 2, it's coming from a character. You know, when he references Infinity War by calling Josh Berlin Thanos, when he talks about how Rob Liefeld can't draw feet, whatever it is that he's referencing is coming from like a specific person on screen who has a sensibility that's being expressed. Whereas with Joe Dante just kind of throwing out like, you know, here's a gremlin doing marathon, man, here's a gremlin doing wizard of Oz, what have you. For me, that's, it's like the director leaning into screen, like MST3K style and saying, what movies guys, Hey, what? And it just, I don't know. It feels, it feels more like he's interfering with me trying to watch a movie than like I'm trying to watch a movie. Like the approaches are so different because they come from one of them comes from off screen. One of them comes from on screen. Well, I guess I would counter that by saying that I think for one, you know, you know Dante doesn't need a character to express these things because he, uh, the filmmaker, is expressing them uh, with images uh, and visual gags. You Explain know. how. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, so I mean, I think it's all. I think the all camera goes is, at twenty four frames per second. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But no, I mean, I mean, I'm just saying this is. It's coming directly. It's coming from this is. Thanks, this, Deadpool. Gremlins two is so much an expression of its creators, you know, obsessions and interests and excitement over certain films and styles of filmmaking that I don't feel like it needs to be mediated by any one person on screen. The other thing too is it's just it's just so quirky. I mean I mentioned Mononcle being a big influence and uh then you have you know stuff like you know fifties science fiction and the character of Grandpa Fred and all that whole tradition that he represents, which is something that Dante really embraces and, and loves. You know, there's some obvious references but some of the refer- the way these references are made are very clever like i think the king kong reference for example in, in gremlins is really fun it's like it's a model building but then it's like a mobile that's with the airplanes overhead it's very it's cute so i think uh dante's just drawing from a quirkier and more idiosyncratic range of reference points and doing it in a lot of different giving you a, a lot of different looks if i'm comparing and contrasting but can, can someone say has someone counted all of the Film references in, in Deadpool too because there's a, there's a ton of them are, are there aren't there I mean like I, I couldn't begin yeah is there a talent in Mr Ripley reference maybe in there? a second or third viewing there's a character uh, the two yokels that Cable kills are played yeah. by Alan Tudyuk and quote unquote Dickie Greenleaf which I believe has been confirmed as Matt Damon. Mm. Okay. Um, oh, I miss that <laughs> oh gosh me too I me too I didn't even recognize Brad. Pitt in, a, in that, yeah, in yeah. Brad, Brad Pitt I got. Yeah, I knew that somebody, but I... Brad, Brad Pitt is the reason I haven't been clicking on all those, here's a celebrity cameo in Deadpool you probably missed uh, mm. kind of articles, which I hate. I, know, I just <laughs> assume that they're like, I don't know, I just always get a uh, Dr. Hibbert on The Simpsons. <laughs> I wonder if anyone else caught that kind of feeling. <laughs> but well, now I feel bad because I completely, that completely went over my head. To go back to referential style, I... I can't believe I'm about to use this term in, in a reference to Gremlins 2, but I do think the way the references are deployed in Gremlins are a little more naturalistic <laughs> in that they are not overtly commented on to the extent that they are in Deadpool 2. Like, there, there's a lot that goes on without comment in Deadpool 2, to be sure, like, including some things that we have just mentioned. But there's a general sense of, general sense of, like, nudging you in the ribs and like, eh, eh, see what's going on here? You know, you get it. And 
in Gremlins 2, the references, I feel, are more there for you to pick up or not. Mm-hmm. Like, we've already mentioned several things that I completely missed in my single viewing of this film, you know, and part of it is because they're not references that I'm familiar with, and part of it is just because I, I miss them in the in the moment, you know, but the referentiality in Gremlins 2 just feels a lot more, and, and this it basically confirms what Tasha says, just in a, in a different way, but it's part of the, the film rather than a part of the character, in Deadpool, you have the character who is sort of like leading you through and holding your hand and sort of telling you how to feel about these references in a way that we don't really have in Gremlins 2. Yeah, but at the same time, like, you don't have to know the history of Shatterstar or Zeitgeist or Domino to appreciate that action sequence. You do kind of have to know Marathon Man to understand why it's meant to be funny that a gremlin drilling Zach Galligan's teeth says, is it safe? Like, that is a reference that doesn't land or have any meaning whatsoever unless you get it. Whereas, like, all of the stuff sandwiched into Deadpool, I think, for the most part, is part of an action narrative that works even if half the references fly over your head. I'm sure, just based on the obscurity of some of the stuff that I got, that there's a ton of stuff in Deadpool 2 that I just didn't get. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate both films in that respect. They both do make obvious references, but they, they're also willing to kind of go off and not necessarily care whether you're going to pick up on it or not. They're just going to power through and, and put something on there just to put it on there. And if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. They're going to move on because it allows for you to be kind of delighted by surprising elements. Like, like if you recall, you know, in Gremlins 2, when the film breaks down and, and, and then it restarts, you get this, this weird Sun Worshipper Films Presents Volleyball Holiday. <laughs> I mean, that just, that is a, such a, you know, which I'm sure that's a reference to some tradition of, of kind of industrial exploitation they, films. They were, only... They're documentaries, I'm making finger quotes, about nudist colonies were, were popular uh, exploitations of genre at the time. Right. I mean, and, and here it is, and here it is in a sequel to a family hit. <laughs> <laughs> called Gremlins. So it's it's nice to have those sorts of elements there. And I, I appreciate the sophistication of both films in that respect. There's also an element in both films of studio referentiality. Like we talked about how Dante kind of was able to use Looney Tunes bumpers because of being in Warner Brothers. And mm-hmm. there's a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff about the X-Men films in Deadpool 2, which I guess is technically an X-Men film, you know, but it is definitely outside of the x-men universe proper i guess um sort of the cousin the x-men don't talk about yeah yeah exactly (laughs) but because it is a part of that same you know studio and and has this is part of the same rights structure you know it is able to make those references in a way that that makes more sense to the film than the Looney Tunes references do in, in Gremlins 2, but they're they're kind of born of the same position these films are in. Yeah, that moment where the X-Men quietly shut the door, <laughs> shutting Deadpool out so he, he doesn't realize they're there, is just, <laughs> it's such a beautiful thing, but it also really is symbolic of, you're going to operate over here in your universe, mm-hmm. we're going to be over here doing serious things about racism and civil rights and, and AIDS and stuff. One trick both of these films pull, uh, I guess Deadpool more rigorously than Gremlins 2 would be breaking the fourth wall and uh, addressing the audience. I mean, this is something that's, that, that is a part of Deadpool. He's talking to you. And the fourth wall breaking in Gremlins is really mostly the film breaking sequence, but there's a little bit more. Uh, could, is that something we should uh, chat about? Well, I mean, I think one of the sort of interesting things about the whole uh, film breaking sequence is that 
I feel like it requires you to have some clue who who Hulk Hogan is or who he was at the time. Um, but even if you don't, here's this big comedic character who's basically looking out at you and saying, you know, don't worry, it won't happen again. The film will not fail you in this specific way again, I promise. <laughs> and there's a, a daringness to that, a kind of a teeming of like the film and the audience. We're on the same page here. You didn't want this to fall apart. We fixed it. Like, go back and sit down. And I, I feel like Deadpool does, Deadpool 2 does a lot of the same. Well, both Deadpools really do a lot of the same kind of thing. I feel like when the Deadpool movies least work for me, it's when that kind of forced teaming that we're both on the same side here doesn't accurately represent like what I'm actually feeling or thinking about the movie. Mm. One of the reasons the fridging gag doesn't work for me is because we go directly from that into the opening credits, which, you know, much like the first film are full of fake outs and it just over and over it's expressing, did that really just happen? Did we really just kill her? Are we really such awful people? And it's like, no, that's not where my head's at. My head's at really that. Did you really do something that lazy? And you think that my head is in the space of that was, exceptional and surprising when it's just a lazy trope now later in the film when juggernaut and colossus clash and deadpool's like oh goody here comes another big cgi fight like that was the movie describing exactly where my head was at and i Mm. found that delightful and i think your mileage is going to vary throughout all the fourth wall breaking when they're addressing you directly and saying here's what you're thinking here's how you're feeling if they get it wrong you end up having a, a very disjointed experience all of a sudden yeah i think it's kind of what you said before there's a difference between the film being self-aware and then a character within the film being self-aware uh, it's just sort of a different feeling to it one thing uh, to get to the fourth wall breaking in gremlins too we've talked about that sequence a lot but i will say a byproduct of breaking the fourth wall is that it makes the audience aware of the film as not this they're escaping into, but as a film that is to be picked apart. And so in turn, that makes us aware of it as a commercial product. Mm-hmm. And so later in the film, you kind of have people walking around in these Mogwai shirts with the X crossed through it like <laughs> Ghostbusters, or you can have comments about the suction cups or whatever that, that you put on cars uh, when, you, when you're you know, selling these promotional items. Uh, you know, I think, I think it kind of gets you in a, a nice headspace when you have that distance from the film. I mean, it's such a radical choice to do it because you really are giving up a lot when you break the fourth wall. But if you do it smartly, with which, which I think both of these films do, it, it, you know, you can give audiences a different kind of experience. In Deadpool 2, I think uh, some of that comes through in its acknowledgement slash bragging of of the first film's success Mm -hmm. and how it enabled this film to to do what it's doing there's at least one uh overt reference to uh the first deadpool's like massive box office i I forget what what, what's the film that that it beat out passion of the christ passion of the christ (laughs) yeah 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 domestically so i guess kind of a connection I see between these two films is a certain we can do what we want stance on the part of the filmmakers, probably much more so in Joe Dante's case. But I mean, the success of the first Deadpool movie did give this film a lot of leeway to push the envelope even further. And it doesn't go in like quite as anarchic uh, or a relatively anarchic direction as Gremlins 2 does by comparison to the first Gremlins. But 
that may also just be because the first Deadpool was a lot more anarchic to begin with than the first Gremlins was. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a dangerous position for Deadpool to be in because if you fashion yourself as being, you know, irreverent, rule-breaking cinema, if you have a sequel that's more of the same, then you're really not doing that. You really can't be said to be that doing that at all, right? Whereas Gremlins 2, I mean, I think whether you like it or not, it is a pretty dramatic departure from what that first film was. And it was Dante kind of burning through studio coin. I mean, I don't think that it was an act of malice on Dante's part. I don't think he was trying to be irresponsible, really. I think he really genuinely thought he was making an entertaining film. Uh, and I think he succeeded in doing that. But the films are definitely different in that, I think. And then at Gremlins 2 does represent a pretty bold and dramatic departure from the previous one in a way that Deadpool 2 does not. Deadpool 2 could have been, should have been really serious. And should have been <laughs> yeah. Well, well I, I, I think, interestingly, that Deadpool 2 is sort of the inverse of what we've been talking about in terms of how Gremlins 2 distinguishes itself, which is like, I think it has a comparative sincerity to the, the first film in, in terms of its themes and its story about family and the the character of Russell. And I think there is a little more heart to Deadpool 2 than Deadpool 1, um, while still being buried behind layers and layers of crass vulgarity and referentiality and smarm. But mm-hmm. like its heart feels bigger than the first Deadpool, whereas Gremlins 2's heart feels much smaller <laughs> than, than the first Gremlins. I mean, Deadpool 2 gives me a lot of cosmic questions. <laughs> like, I mean, we're talking about a, a universe here where, like, Satan roams around. Like, not necessarily the, the cinematic universe, but just like Marvel Comics. What exactly is this movie's vision of the afterlife? Like, Mm. when you die, you get to go sit in a rocking chair and be the conscience of your boyfriend who comes and visits you every time he gets knocked out? Like... I just don't understand what's going on in this movie cosmically. Well, I mean, I don't know if we're necessarily supposed to see that as Vanessa's reality so much as like what Wade sees on the verge of death. It, it basically just seems like the this film's version of the white light, like going toward the white light, you know? I didn't necessarily take it to mean like that's where Vanessa is in the afterlife. Mm. But, you know, I suppose you could certainly interpret it that way. And that is a, a much sadder fate than her already sad fate so but i mean she does give him these you know gnomic mm-hmm. prophecies basically that that guide him through the movie he already knows all that he's just getting it through the vision of vanessa I, I'm, that's so beautiful <laughs> i'm gonna say i i think trying to analyze this further is not gonna be the fruitful uh, <laughs> avenue for us to explore you say that but like one other connection between these movies is that they both don't give a crap about their own roles. True. Yeah. And yeah. I, I find that a little strange in two movies that are so much about examining the previous movies and commenting on them, examining their own tropes and laughing at them. Like in Deadpool 2, he comes back easily and simply from having been blown into like dozens and dozens of pieces but when he gets ripped in half, we were subjected to like 10 minutes of him walking around with a baby butt. Like, oh, yeah. I don't know exactly what that was all about. With the with the Gremlins 2 thing, I'm, <laughs> I keep being thrown by the fact that the brain Gremlins just like, we have a simple serum here that'll make us immune to sunlight. I'm going to stick it in one Gremlin and then we're done with that plot forever. <laughs> uh, 
Well, it's a, it's a mystery that, that I guess you'll have to explore uh, on your own. Uh, you can find uh, Gremlins 2 on DVD and Blu-ray and all the various streaming services. Maybe you can find it on a VHS and really get uh, a, sense of, uh, a sense of it that way. Deadpool 2 will be at a theater near you for a while. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes they'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I'm going to take a second to stump again for Hunt for the Wilder People, which if you like Julian Dennison in Deadpool 2, you can see mm-hmm. more of him doing a, a different... Oh, well, you know, his, his character in Hunt for the Wilder People cannot catch his hands on fire, but he's also playing a troubled youth with a charming side to him and it's it's a very different set of actorly skills uh kind of coming from the same sensibility in a fun way but i've already spent in the entirety of a your next picture show highly recommending hunt for the wilder people so instead i'm going to try something entirely different which is a movie that came into theaters in britain on may 11th it's going to be released in theaters in america on may 25th which should be after the show drops called how to talk to girls at parties mm-hmm. um it is directed by and uh, co-written by John Cameron Mitchell, who is the writer-director star of uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch uh, and Short Bus. It's an adaptation, sort of, of a Neil Gaiman short story in which a bunch of kind of hapless teenage boys crash a party basically trying to get into some women's pants and don't realize that they've crashed the wrong party and that the women that they're talking to are aliens. And it's the short story, which is available for free online at Neil Gaiman's website, uh, if you want to go find it. It's kind of about the idea that women are unfathomable to teenage boys. And there's a a weird thing in there that's basically like, you know, girls are not to be understood. There's some kind of cosmic mystery. And it's kind of distancing in a way. The movie sort of draws on that idea, puts it into basically Neil Gaiman's past, like his his own personal past as a punk growing up in uh, like the suburbs of London uh, in the 1970s. It takes that setting and turns it into a very John Cameron Mitchell story about a punk rock and the emotion of music and uh, like the the feeling of anarchy that comes with being a teenager trying to find your way in the world. It is rough in some ways. It is very, very far from a perfect movie. Uh, our friend Vikram, uh, I believe, <laughs> called it complete and utter bullshit. <laughs> he was he was not at all. Do you, uh, do you like it? No, no, he does not seem to have liked it quite so much. I don't know. Uh, for me, there's just there's an energy to it that's a lot of fun. Nicole Kidman is in it. Uh, Matt Lucas plays one of the aliens. There's a whole. Mitchell introduces a whole kind of like cosmic element to it that becomes kind of about the generational gap in the same kind of way that the origins of love segment from Hedwig and the Angry Inch sets out this grand mythology that explains like human connection. There are things that happen in how to talk to girls at parties, which seems to be kind of trying to set out like a giant cosmic explanation for why the generation gap exists for how young people and old people can't relate for what it takes to be defined as a person. It stars Elle Fanning and uh, Alex Sharp. Alex Sharp uh, was the 
kind of love interest character in Marty Noxon's To the Bone, and Elle Fanning is in everything and is usually pretty delightful. He's the young teenage boy that crashes the wrong party. She's the rebellious alien that kind of wants to like make her mark on the world before she goes back to space. Uh, they're a Romeo and Juliet story, and that goes in the direction that Romeo and Juliet stories tend to go with a couple of really interesting twists to it. So it's rough. It's ramshackle. Uh, it's a little over the top, I guess. But Mitchell is entirely sincere about the emotions going on. And he describes this as the science fiction goth love story that he would have wanted to see at age 16. And I just I think there's both a real energy to it and a real interest in that. So how to talk to girls at parties. It comes out on May 11th in the UK. It comes out on May 25th uh, here in the States. And frankly, it's a small enough movie that I would be very surprised if it isn't on VOD pretty soon after that. Was it a prose short story first? I've read the comic. Uh, I wasn't aware there was a comic. I don't yeah. know which came first, but I, I mean, I do know that it's available online right now. The uh, short story. Okay, Genevieve, how about you? Okay, uh, well, back at the end of last year when we were all cramming for our best films of the year list, uh, there was one movie that I was really eager to see but couldn't get to a screening or get my hands on a screener of it, so I missed out on a 2017 film that I suspected I'd really enjoy. And now that it's streaming on Netflix, I can confirm that I did, in fact, enjoy the documentary Faces Places. Mm. Uh, the film by legendary Belgian director Agnes Varda and French street artist J.R. made its way through the festival and awards season circuits, often accompanied by a cardboard cutout of Varda that became a meme unto itself. Uh, so you've probably at least heard of it or seen a clip of it at the Oscars. It was uh, nominated. But if you haven't, it follows Varda and JR on an extension of JR's Inside Out project, where they roam the villages of France, making large-scale portraits of people they meet and talk to, and then paste them onto buildings in those villages. Uh, it takes a sort of vignette-based structure that's less about establishing a chronology or a narrative and more about exploring some of each artist's favored themes and artistic obsessions. Uh, it's a very fleet and frequently playful film, but it doesn't feel lightweight or disposable. Uh, there's a sincerity and humanity to Varda and JR's artistic impulse here, uh, and it comes through in their discussions with French citizens as well as each other. Uh, in fact, the relationship that blossoms between Varda and JR, who are separated in age by 55 years, is one of the film's most delightful and surprisingly tender elements. But delightful and surprisingly tender would easily apply to much of this film, and I'd highly recommend you seek it out if you manage to miss its theatrical run. Uh, Faces Places, it's now streaming on Netflix. I think, have all of you seen seen it? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Terrific. Yep. Heard great things. Oh, you love it. It's, it's, it's not going to take much of your time, right? No, it's 90 minutes, very easy watch, you know, subtitles, but you can handle that, I think. <laughs> Maybe mad at Jean-Luc Godard. I know. Yeah, like, right. I, don't, I, I don't really, I, I don't want to spoil the, the Godard <laughs> element of the film, but uh, it will... Yes, it will make you mad at him, probably. Yeah, it's a, it's a very Godardian thing for him yes. to do, <laughs> yes, to, be, to be that big of a jerk. Uh, Keith? Well, for the highest thing I could possibly recommend right now is go see 2001 A Space Odyssey in 70mm, playing mm. uh, theaters across the country. It's this uh, unrestored version uh, overseen by Christopher Nolan. What does unrestored mean, Keith? Unrestored in this case means that uh, it's kind of complicated, but in 1999, Warner Brothers made some interpositives, which is sort of a halfway process between a negative and, and a new print and never really did anything with it. And, and they kind of just went in and cleaned it up without any sort of doing any digital work on it at all. And it looks great. It was just... Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time should be seen on the biggest screen possible and just totally transporting to see it in 70 millimeter. We saw a print last year of 70 millimeter and it also looked 
very good. You know, I think it might be recency bias, but I think this looks maybe it's a smidge better, but it was just really cool to see in the theater with a bunch of people. But I'll, I'll recommend a different movie, which will be on HBO at this point, which is The Tale, mm-hmm. uh, which is by Jennifer Fox, which was a big deal movie at Sundance this year. It was not actually picked up for theatrical distribution. Uh, it was picked up by HBO. And Fox has said she's okay with that because she's worried that people would not want to go out and see this. Mm-hmm. It's a very difficult subject matter. It's a very difficult film to watch. I think it's rewarding. I think some elements are a, a little clunkier than others, but uh, for the most part, it works ex- extremely well. Um, it stars Laura Dern as Jennifer Fox based on her actual story of sort of remembering or, or kind of reframing what happened to her at the age of 13 um, in less romanticized terms than she thought it had. Uh, and I don't want to give too much away, but it is about sexual abuse. And it is about largely setting the motion as it was for Fox in real life by her mother discovering a story she had written, which is sort of a thinly veiled account of what had happened to her and how time had played tricks with her over the years and involves Dern interacting with a younger version of herself by an uh, actress named Isabel Nelise, who's quite good as well. And uh, it does some interesting things with twisting perceptions and showing how memory can distort things and and it is the definition of a tough set it is a tough film to watch but i think it's uh worth anyone's time okay uh yeah i really i'm interested in in that one for myself i have a a couple of little recommendations and one official recommendation i mean one i if you if you're the type of person who likes joe dante and likes spoofs and likes Paul Bartel in Joe Dante spoofs. Uh, I think you should probably take a look at Hollywood Boulevard, his 1976 film, uh, which is basically about making Roger Corman movies. And it's very wacky and full of uh, footage from <laughs> movies that Corman had made. There's a production company called Miracle Pictures uh, that they're making movies for, and the the line for that studio is, "If it's a good picture, it's a miracle." <laughs> um, so uh, I have a lot of affection for it. And so if you like Dante and you like the uh, sensibility of gremlins too i would check that out uh the other thing i would say is uh you know philip roth died by it was by the time this recording happens and he died last week but i thought the the recent adaptation of his work a film called indignation that was made a couple years ago was like the one film that got his voice right at a minimum it has one very very long scene between logan lerman and tracy letts that's one of my favorite scenes of the last several years so i think that one's pretty easy to find out there and if you haven't seen it i would strongly check it out if you like philip roth uh and i guess my official recommendation you know i've i've talked about how i will make these little lists for watching uh for filmmakers who are are still with us but may not be with us forever (laughs) uh i did one on john borman which led me to a film called queen and country that's the most recent film of his i could bring myself to recommend it's from 2014 and it's his sequel to hope and glory which is an absolute masterpiece it's a very personal film about a boy you know growing up you know, in suburban London during the Blitz, and it's it's funny, and it's got a really, it's got just a, a boy's perspective, which is that it's this great adventure, but it's also, of course, very traumatic for his family, and uh, it's just got a, a really wonderful and unique tone to it. Uh, Queen and Country doesn't have the stakes of Hope and Glory, and it's not as it's not as good as Hope and Glory. But it's, there's still a lot of elements that are the the same. I mean, in this case, the boy is now an 18-year-old who's called up to the armed services as the country is engaging in the Korean War. But while most of his fellow conscripts are shipped off 
to the front lines. He and his buddy, played by Caleb Landry Jones, of all people, uh, stay behind to teach typing. And the worst action they see have to do with sort of the petty grievances of their superiors, who are all guys who, who had served in World War II and are extremely high strung as a result. It is a not a film of, like I said, high stakes, but it is very funny and prankish and a very warm and nice continuation of, of, a, of an excellent film. So if you like Hope and Glory, I think it's really worth checking out Queen and Country as well. Great personal filmmaking from John Borman. I, I think you recommended Hope and Glory for a previous uh, Your Did Next really? Picture show. So this is appropriately a sequel. <laughs> a sequel. To, um, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that I was, I, had, I, had, I think I was like so amped by revisiting Hope and Glory that I guess I had to go to Borman again. So three things, Hollywood Boulevard, Indignation, Queen and Country. Do you have a fourth? <laughs> Seems like you're 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 being a little skimpy this week. I was gonna rec- I was gonna rec- recommend Magic, but it's uh, it's not really available mm. uh, easily on I, uh, streaming. I think given that we uh, talked about it briefly, uh, the, I, I know at least three of us at this table would recommend the Nines as, as oh, well. Yeah. Uh, sure. uh, uh, Scott, sure. that's Tasha's go-to. Yeah, it, it really is. I, a, I watch it because of Tasha, and I, I fully recommend it myself. John August. It's just oh yeah, I mean it's uh, one of the reasons I have such enduring respect for John August, and it's also. I love a film that surprises me. And that film, if you <laughs> if you walk into it without knowing what you're getting into, I guarantee it'll surprise you. Mm-hmm. Bonus. Bonus your next picture show. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out June 12th and 14th. Keith, what are we discussing? Next time we'll be visiting not one, but two of God's Lonely Men, with a double feature from the pen of Paul Schrader. First, we'll look at the Martin Scorsese-directed 1976 classic Taxi Driver, starring Robert De Niro as a cabbie who sees 70s Manhattan as a place of sin and degradation. Then we'll discuss First Reformed, Schrader's latest as writer and director, an Ethan Hawke-starring film that's earning Schrader some of the best reviews of his career. In De Niro's Taxi Driver and Hawk's Small Town Pastor, Schrader offers a vision of alienation and violence that has covered the four-decade expanse of his career. Are you talking to me, you might ask? Yes. The next picture show is talking to you. In the meantime, that was very dramatic. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Gremlins 2, Deadpool 2, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve? You can find my work at the culture section at vox.com and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Tasha? You can find me writing about film and TV and running a bunch of people who are also writing about film and TV as the film and TV editor at TheVerge.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith? Oh, I'm just a writer for hire. I'm, I'm out there, uh, you know. I, I hired Keith today that's, that's to write a Philip Roth remembrance. Yeah. I hired Keith earlier this week to write about how 2001 <laughs> A Space Odyssey is uh, Christopher Nolan's wet dream of analog movie making. <laughs> this is, this is you know, and they heartily endorse uh, me. But anyway, uh, you can find my writing currently at well vox the verge vulture um he only writes for v outlets yeah exactly <laughs> uh and, and a couple other places coming up so uh, vanity fair and you can find <laughs> yeah, not yet not yet hey hit me up vanity fair i'll write for you right. um <laughs> sure yeah happy to write for for well, there are a lot of them <laughs> our, our premier uh trade publication uh you can find me on twitter at kfips 3000 scott Okay, um, I, I like that we're now going to both have just a random assortment of 
publications. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work at New York Times, uh, Washington Post, uh, NPR, and other uh, fine publications. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. And thanks to me for providing a recording space at my home base, Sweet Emotion Studios. Thanks to your wife for letting us. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Thanks to my wife and my thanks for my kids for kind of going upstairs to create a lot of racket instead of bothering us down here. And thanks to the fourth wall, which you just thoroughly broke. <laughs> that's right. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. the most beautiful performance I've ever seen in my life. Thank you so much. Thank you. No, thank you. We need to do it again.